praise of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And as you're seated, please turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis. And today we'll be in Genesis chapter 15. And this is really one of those passages that you might read it at first, or maybe even, even if you're familiar with it, um, you think, what in the world does this mean? It's kind of one of those passages which, uh, which you know, we don't have necessarily a, a, a historical context for, uh, but once we begin to understand it, we see just how, how meaningful and how powerful it is and what it shows us about who God is and what it shows you, us about how God works. And so I, I just pray and hope that you're encouraged as we look in this word today. Um, it is one of those passages why I encourage people to bring like a physical paper Bible. Because again, there's just some things which you do better in writing and circling and underlining. And it's always okay to underline and circle in your Bible, right? Um, and making notes in the little side. Because, you know, some things are, are challenging. Sometimes even... I don't know where something is in my Bible, but I know about where it is, and I know it's on that side of the page, and I kind of find about where it is. I can't do that on a phone, but you can do that in a Bible. So get to know your Bible, get to know well. And this is one of those ones you'd be like, this is this really weird passage my pastor talked to me about. I don't remember what it was, but it was on that side of the page. And uh, so maybe that'll be helpful to remind you. One more thing, just to say this, is that uh, one of the theologians that many of you know that influenced me greatly was R.C. Sproul. And in R.C. Sproul, he said about chapter 15, verse 17, that if he was stuck on an island with only one verse that he had access to, only one verse that he had access to, that whole time he was stuck on an island, he would pick chapter 15, verse 17. So, so, you know, some of you have been significantly influenced by him, and I don't know what verse you would pick if you were stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life. Um, that's one he picked. So I think there's some significance if people pick uh, passages like that. But anyways, we'll see, we'll see why today. All right, so Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of God. May add his blessing to the reading of it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to your holy, inerrant word, your word which is given to us, which is written another century, and sometimes we don't understand, but God, all of it reveals something about you. Help us to understand it, not only to understand it, but to see how it affects our life, and as we see how it affects our life, Father, we want to turn around and then to live it, to apply it to your honor and glory. And so, Lord, be with us as we study. Help me be clear. Help us all to understand well your word that we may apply it. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you, have you ever gotten a promise that seemed too good to be true? Or an offer that was too good to be true or seemed too good to be true? So you're getting out your microscope or your, te- your magnifying glass and you're, you're reading the fine print just to be sure that what they say that they really mean. I remember when I was growing up, my dad made a promise. He was a bit of a jokester. I was 15 years old and, and you, know, you know what I was thinking about, car. I wanted a car. And they had previously told me that I wasn't going to get a car when I turned 16. But then when I was 15, suddenly things changed and my dad said, I'll get you a car for your birthday. And I started to imagine, and I started laying out, oh, Dad, will you buy me this kind of car? He said, yeah, I'll buy you that kind of car. Will you buy me this kind of car? Yeah, I mean, it kept getting better, as you can imagine, as time went on. And I was just, you know, considering our financial situation, considering what he'd already told me in the past, I was just blown away. Did they win the lottery? Did something happen? Where this sudden dose of generosity, where'd that come from? And then I started to ask about the size of the car that I was going to get. And as I talked about it, the car kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller until it could fit, you know, about in the size of a matchbox car or something like that. He was a jokester with me in that. You know, but when somebody makes us a promise, uh, especially a big promise, we want to we be sure that they are going to be true to their word. We don't always feel like we can b- believe it. We, we want them to add some, some credibility to it. We want to see it in writing. For little kids, we might do a pinky promise with somebody. Um, but we want to know that what they're saying, they really mean it. Now, what about God? What about God's promises? God, how am I to know that you will fulfill your promises? How am I to know? It's a pretty important question, isn't it? God, how do I know that you're going to forgive my sins? God, how do I know that when I pray, that you hear me. God, you, you say that when I die, if I believe in Jesus, I'll go to heaven. That's a pretty big promise and a pretty big thing to bank my eternal existence on. God, how can I know that you're speaking the truth? God, you say you'll be with me. You are. How do I know it's true? How do I know? As we come to Abram's life in Genesis 15, we see him wrestling with this question. Starting in Genesis 12, all the way through 13, 14, and then chapter 15, all the way to verse uh, seven, which we're looking at today, God makes a number of promises. 
He promises to make him a great nation. He promises him he's gonna be a blessing. He tells him he's gonna have a son. He tells him he's gonna have many descendants. If you look at verse seven, he tells him that he is um, going to inherit land. All these, all these promises are given to him. They're, they're so fantastic, they're, they're almost impossible to believe, right? And so Abram, coming down to verse eight, has a question for the Lord. You can see it, Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? How am I to know? Abram's question was a question of of trust. Whenever it comes to trust, at least two things are necessary. Somebody makes a promise to us, we have to, number one, believe that they can do the thing that they say, that they have within themselves the power to do it. That's the first thing. And the second thing we want to know is, do they have the willingness to follow through on their promise? Is there something which is going to draw them to the point of completion? So those two fundamental things about trust, if we're going to trust anyone, can they do it? And do they mean what they say? Are they actually willing to carry this all the way to the end? Your boss may say, you know, I want to give you a raise. I'm going to give you a raise at the end of the year. How do you know? A boyfriend may say, he's going to marry me. How do I know? Dad, you said you're going to take us to, take, to get ice cream tonight. Did you really mean it? Can they do it? Are they willing to do it? So Genesis 15 is about growing trust. Really, his whole life is about growing trust. But Genesis 15 gives us a window into what's happening here. And the chapter is so important because it says something about the trustworthiness of God. And it's important for us because to the degree that we trust God's promises is the degree that we're going to walk with him by faith. To the degree that we trust his promises are the degree that we'll walk with him in difficult obedience. That we'll walk with him in, in the, the, the sacrificial life he calls us to is when we recognize that he has promises which are greater than anything we could give up in this life, which are greater than anything we can hope for in this life, as we recognize those things, our belief that his promises are true and sure are a guide to us in our decision-making. That's the fruitful life that, that Hebrews 11.6 talks about. Hebrews 11.6 says that, that we're rewarded by God depending on faith. Verse, uh, Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. In fact, even as we understand salvation, salvation itself, eternal life, depends upon a trust in God. All right, so today we want to look at how we can confidently trust in God's promises. And as my uh, outline is laid out in the bulletin, uh, you can see my first point. My first point is a question. The question is this, is are you in a place to see that God is trustworthy? Are you in a place to see that he is trustworthy? That's because some people will never see the trustworthiness of God because they don't ever look for it. They don't ever listen to God to where they see that he's trustworthy. They don't care. They want to be self-sufficient. They don't want to look at the implications of a life by faith. Now, God puts Abram in a spot to look to see his trustworthiness. And he starts by giving Abram a simple task. Might be a little strange task. 
If we don't know what's going on here, it really seems strange because he tells him to gather up some animals. How does it answer my, my prayer? How does it answer my question? Abram might ask, well, we will all see. Verse nine, God said, Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So as God plans, he answers this question. Abram needs to do a few things. He needs to gather these animals up, and then verse 10 shows us what he did. Verse 10, Abram brought God all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. All right, so what's going on here? This is an ancient covenant-making ceremony. It's something that would have been familiar with Abram and the people around them, um, but because it, it's something that has meaning, significance. People understood what was happening as people would do this covenant-making ceremony. And so the animals, they were gathered up and they were sacrificed. They were cut in half, and then they were laid on either side of a small trench. Abram would have gone and dug a small trench down between those animals, and then as the animals were cut up, you can imagine what a mess it was, and all that blood that would have come out of these carcasses would have, would have kind of trickled down um, into that trench, and it would have been located inside of that, that trench. And in a traditional covenant-making ceremony, what would happen is that two nations would be gathered together, or two leaders, two kings, and they were going to enter in some sort of alliance or some sort of covenant with one another, and they would both walk down that bloody trench. They would both walk between the, the carcasses on both sides. And as they walked down, they would affirm the promises they were making to the other nation. Maybe there were promises of a, of a political alliance for, for military support or, or tribute that would be given or some sort of service. But as they walked down, they would be affirming those covenant promises as they walked down that bloody path. And what they were indicating as they did that was that if they were to break those covenant promises, that they should die the same kind of death that those carcasses experienced. You know, that, that same awful thing which was done to those animals would be something that these two people who are walking down this bloody trench would be promising um, would happen to them or would be uh, cursing themselves with if they were to break that covenant. I mean, this is really a serious um, decision. I mean, we make covenants. We still, make, we still have covenants. We have covenants in our neighborhoods, right? You probably, maybe in your neighborhood you have a covenant of how long your grass can be or, or what uh, color your siding can be or, or what paint you can use or what fence you can use. I mean, we have all kinds of covenants inside of our neighborhoods, but you know, they're not attended with a death penalty um, with them. You know, we make contracts when it comes to buying houses and cars and, and, and and, and those things. But, you know, again, you know, the worst to do is confiscate. You know, but here they're making a promise that, you know, they're saying, if, this, if I break this, you know, may, um, may I be cursed with death. And so, you know, what is a covenant? But a covenant is an agreement that two people make together. They make it together. They say, how are we going to live together? We're each going to fulfill certain responsibilities, certain mutual obligations, so that we uh, can have this relationship, this life together. And um, the word here, it's interesting. If you look down at verse 18, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Made a covenant. Now, if you look in the Hebrew that's behind that word make, it's actually to cut. 
you can understand, you know, the, the idea is he actually cuts a covenant. You know, that's the idea behind all the making of the covenant in, inside of the Old Testament, that it's cut, that there's, there's an um, issue of, of life and death, an issue of blood, which is, which is a part of that uh, covenant that is, that is being made. Now, before we move on, you know, and, come, and just dwelling on this first point a bit, you know, I want to ask you, is if you're in a place to see the trustworthiness of God, are you in a place to see the trustworthiness of God? I mean, Abraham was asking, would God do what he promised to do? Abraham had to prepare himself before he got God's answer. Yes, God would prove it, but he required Abraham to search it out, to dig it out. You'll never find the trustworthiness of God if, if you don't look for it. I remember when I first became a Christian, this is before I became a Christian, I saw the people around me. I saw that the, the Christian people who are in my, who are in my life, um, they had a certain joy to them. They had a certain love uh, in their lives. They had a purpose which drove their decisions. And I was looking at my life and I was thinking, you know, I don't have that joy. I don't have that love. I don't have that sense of purpose. And I'm not making the same decisions you are. So the difference must be, you know, you're a happy person because you live a more moral life, Right. So I set myself out and I said, I'm going to be a really moral person um, in order to know the same joy and, and happiness that you seem to have and purpose that you have. Well, I realized before long that it was really hard to be moral. I, I realized that I just kept messing up time after time after time. And I realized that I needed grace. I mean, it wasn't just that I needed to be more moral. I needed to be changed I mean, it wasn't just that I needed a moral life, is that I needed a savior to uh, forgive my sins and, and to make me something new. And, and it wasn't long after that that I became a Christian. It was a few months after that that I became a Christian. And in a lot of ways, my attempts to be moral were futile. I mean, they could never have given me eternal life. But as I look back on that part of my life, one thing I was reflecting on was like, you know, that was kind of a, a precursor to me finding what real life was. Because I knew one thing in my life. I knew I wanted God. I knew I needed God and I wanted that joy as a part of my life. And the best way I thought to do it was just be more a moral person. And I needed something else. But, at least, but, but for me it was, hey, I'm gonna try something new. I'm gonna try something new. I, 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 because what I'm doing is not working. I wanna know God and this is the best that I know at this point in order to do. Later somebody would tell me why I went wrong. I wouldn't have known that if I wouldn't have tried. Someone would have told me, you know, what it, what it takes to live a life that pleases God. I mean, I wouldn't have known that if I wouldn't have tried and failed. And that's where I found the graciousness of God in Jesus Christ. I also remember this time that if I wanted to know God, I needed to read the Bible. And even though I wasn't a Christian, that, you know, as I'd read through the New Testament, I'd read Matthew, I'd read Mark, I'd read Luke and John, and I was just amazed at the life of Jesus. You know, I knew I wanted God in my life. I knew that it was somewhere inside that Bible, and so I just said, I'm going to read those, and I mean, his life just jumped off the page. Maybe it's done for a lot of you, so I hear your stories. You know, I've, I've heard this true in so many of your, of, of your lives. Maybe it's not true. Maybe the thing that you need to do to see if you can trust God is to put your place, put yourself in a place to see his trustworthiness. You know, put yourself in a place of obedience to him. Maybe it's obedience and turning away from a certain sin or a set of sins. Maybe it's your lying or your stealing or your lusts. Confess that sin. Bring it to the Lord. 
Confess it is wrong. Maybe that's the thing you need to do. Or, or maybe laying that, that foundation of seeing as trustworthiness is taking the next step in the direction you know you need to go. You know, what is that step in missions or ministry? What's that step in life, in obedience to Christ that you need to take? And just trusting him that he's going to get you, you know, that, that he'll carry you in those times. Or even that time of worship, you know, trusting him that, that this life of worship matters. It's also getting in the Bible. It's getting in times of, of prayer. You'll never know the trustworthiness of God until you hear from God. You hear his word and, and you talk to him and interact with him around his, along his word in, in prayer. Remember, again, being a non-believer and just praying to God. I didn't know God. He and I weren't exactly on praying grounds at that point, but I just prayed, God, if you're there, show yourself to me. You know, help me understand that you're there. And I wasn't a Christian, but in his gracious mercy, God answered that prayer. He showed me who he was. And I didn't know what was going on. I just said, you know what? If I want to know God, I need to pray. Maybe you're in that spot too. You need to just pray. You'll never see the trustworthiness of God if you just don't do the little things that he tells you to do. Do those little things he has for you. All right, so our second point. So that's our first point. Are you in a position to see God's trustworthiness? Well, let's look at the next section, um, and we learn a little bit about God's timeline in this one. God's promises are fulfilled on his timeline. So Abram's uh, been dealing with the promises of God for a number of years now, about 10 years. And if you've ever waited for anything for 10 years, it feels like a really long time, right? 10 years feels like, I mean, that's a good chunk of our life. And so... You know, Abram's asking, why is this taking so long for God to fulfill his promises? And what God does next in verse 13 on is he expands God's, um, Abram's timeline a little bit, like 400 years, or actually longer than 400 years. Um, he expands it way out there. Um, but it's really a reminder for Abram to trust. Uh, the first thing is he does is he tells him about his descendants. You can see it in verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not yours and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, we know it's what this is talking about. If we know our Bible, we know our Old Testament, we're going to remember this is talking about Israel in captivity in Egypt. So hundreds of years past Abram's life, he was, his descendants, the nation of Israel, would be brought into Egypt to escape a famine, but over time, they would be turned into slaves, and they would be under the oppression of King Pharaoh. But all of these things would happen, right? They would live in a land that's not theirs, Egypt. They'd be servants there. They're going to be slaves, afflicted for 400 years under an awful slavery. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God would judge Egypt with 10 plagues. And at the end of those 10 plagues, God would bring Israel out, again, with great possessions. One of the amazing things about this passage is that hundreds of years before it happened, and another hundreds of years before it was finally completed, is that it actually happened. Really an amazing prophecy declared uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before it was going to happen. God's showing Abram that he and Abram are on a different timeline. Abram is concerned for his life, these 10 years, what's going to happen in the future. He wanted a child, right? But God's timeline is different. He's not just looking at a child. He's looking for a righteous people. 
He's looking for a holy nation, a nation of people who walk with him. Abram was the seed, but God was looking for the tree. If you've ever seen your trees grow up in your backyard around, they take a long time to grow. And so Abram needed to be patient. He needed to trust that God was going to build his people. He's going to fulfill his promises. It's also a great reminder to us is that we don't know what our obedience now and our faith and trust now is going to yield in the future. I mean, this took hundreds and hundreds of years to develop, but God was still in it. You know, our responsibility now is obeying him, being faithful to what he's called us to that's right before us, but we don't know what God is going to do in the future. I mean, who knows if that, if that child you're teaching in Sunday school is going to be the next Billy Graham? Who knows that the grandchildren that you're taking into your life and, and interacting with, what they're going to do in ministry of the Lord? You just don't know. You don't know what God is going to do. Abraham had no sense for what God would do through his descendants except these promises. You know, this is mind-blowing that he's there. The next promise we see in verse 15 is to Abram. He says, as to you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You should be buried in a good old age. So whatever is going to happen with Israel in the future, their servitude is not going to happen to him. Um, God is making a promise to him of a certain kind of life there, and, if, and he's going to know this blessing. And then in verse 16, God goes on to speak about um, his offspring again. It says, and they, meaning Abraham's descendants shall come back here to the promised land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he speaks about why this delay is going to take place. And why will that nation of Israel be in Egypt for 400 years? Why won't they even go for another few hundred years? What's all this time? And the reason is because is God is giving the people of the land there a chance to repent. A chance to turn to God. A chance to turn away from their sins. God is so patient. He's so patient. Every day, all of creation screams out about the existence of God. Romans 1 talks about it. Psalm 19 talks about it. You know, as you go, you, you can't ever go anywhere and not see the declaration of the existence of God wherever you go. Calling people to repentance. Calling people to turn to God in faith. And so we see God's patience here with these nations remaining here and saying, you know, that he's going to wait. He's given times for repentance. It's really a good reminder to us of 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9, and a reminder to us why God doesn't judge unrighteous nations. Even if we see the sin in our own nation, why doesn't God judge our own nation? And you see God's patience and his mercy. He wants them to repent. And while there's a possibility of people hearing that message of repenting, judgment doesn't come. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, there's a plan of patience here. We just pray we pray as we look around us at our own nation, as we look at our, our neighbors, our own community. We pray for repentance. We pray for faith. And we keep making Christ known. 
Oh, that God wouldn't judge our nation. Oh, that, 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 um, that God would come and turn people to faith in Christ. That, that the sinful and the, the iniquity, path, the path of iniquity that so many choose in our nation that seems to choose, we turn away from that. We turn to what is righteous and what is true and what is good. And for our, for our loved ones who don't know Christ, we, we pray that they would know Christ and we pray that God would open their hearts to hear him and to know him. We, we share Christ with our neighbors. We share Christ with our loved ones because we just pray. Would they believe? There's still time. There's still time for repentance. There's still time for faith. You know, we're coming together tonight at our evening service to pray. It's a concert of prayer. And just to pray for our nation, pray for our community, pray for the ministry of the gospel in our world. All right, so let's see where we are. Abram has asked God how he can be sure that God would fulfill his promises. And the Lord's first answer is, Abram, trust my timeline. You're finite, Abram. I'm infinite. I have a plan. Right? But the second answer, and that brings us to our third point, is he shows Abram how committed he is by entering into a solemn covenant. And here we see the covenant being established. All right, so number, point number three is this, the self-obligation of God's covenant. All right, so let's look at verse 17. What happens next here? Uh, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. And he goes on to explain what that, that land is. So what do we see? Verse 17, you see this, this, this smoking fire pot, a flaming torch. They're passing between the pieces. They're passing along that trench. If you look to verse 18, you see the Lord making a covenant. So in other words, that the flaming torch or the, the uh, flaming torch, the smoking fire pot, that is the Lord. This is a theophany. It's, a, it's an appearing of God. God has God come to be present with Abram. He's present in this covenant-making ceremony. Because if a covenant's going to be made, both the people have to be there, right? And in this place, God has drawn near. That's why if you look back at verse 12, this is overarching shadow comes over Abram. You know, that God in all of his holiness, God in any of his holy judgment is there. There's a sense for God's holiness and his presence there. And that passes between the pieces. But notice what doesn't happen, right? Sometimes it's what's not there that's one of the most important things. What's not there is that Abram doesn't walk between the pieces. Abram doesn't walk through the blood. That is what we'd expect, that both would walk through because they're making a covenant together. Abram doesn't make a promise. Only God makes a promise in this. God gives a promise of land without getting a promise from Abram. I mean, that is grace. That is grace. That's because Abram could never by himself fulfill that covenant with God. I mean, it would require perfection. And Abram was a sinner. It'd be like promising a Disney World trip if your five-year-old could pass calculus class. You know, it's, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. If fulfilling the promises depended on Abram, there would be no way he'd ever enjoy them. And so God, he takes on all the obligation on himself. Anything that would be required, God takes on himself, as well as taking on the promises that he gives. 
He will ensure that everything is done to gain those promises. And that's a really a powerful word. It's, again, verse 17. That's R.C. Sproul's favorite verse. It's, it's powerful in what it declares. Because you can see how certain the promise is. Is that God is saying if he doesn't do it, he deserves death. Remember, he's the one who's passing between the blood, between the carcasses. He's the one promising his own blood on his own blood that he do those things. For, for his part, God has nothing or no one greater to make a promise by than himself. I mean, God is perfectly true. I mean, who is God going to appeal to? You know, who is God going to appeal to? Listen to them. They know I'm telling the truth. I mean, ultimately, his word, it's the highest word that we can have. That's why we listen to what he says and we obey. We trust him. He doesn't make false promises. But here, for the sake of Abram, he shows the impossibility of deceiving Abram or letting Abram down. Because the same possibility of him lying is the same possibility of him dying. God is eternal. God is unchangeable. It's not going to happen. He's not going to die, and he's not going to lie. And it's for Abram and all of Abram's people that they'd gone through. They could have never fulfilled the obligations of a covenant with God. When the covenant was broken, someone would have to die, and Abram couldn't possibly go through those pieces. But any requirements of the covenant which required death, God took on himself. And he took on that through the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Remember, God requiring perfection, perfection to come into his presence in order to know him, to, to enjoy eternal life, to know the land. God required perfection. And what about our sin? How would God accomplish that? It was through him shedding the blood of his son. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came and fulfilled the half of God's covenant for all of his people. God expects perfect obedience to his commands. That's the condition of the covenant. You and I are covenant breakers. We've broken, we've broken God's commands. Just like the, those pieces, we deserve death. But in God's covenant of grace, Jesus Christ fulfills our need for perfect righteousness. Righteousness is still required, but it's filled by God in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He, ra- he was raised in our, for our forgiveness. So God, God obligated himself to death in the cutting of this covenant. He obligated himself to death if he was going to fulfill righteousness on behalf of his people. So how committed is God to his promises? He'll do everything needed to fulfill his covenant. That forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, he'll do everything needed to fulfill. He, he obligates himself to it. That's, that's grace. Grace is, grace is giving something to someone that they don't deserve. Abram didn't deserve the land. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve eternal life. But it's given freely. That's grace. That's what grace is. That's what grace is for you and for me. And this is not just about a piece of land for Abram. It's a picture of eternal life. It's a picture of heaven. You know, for Abram, it was the land, but, but as the New Testament says, that this land is a shadow of what's ultimately to come. It's a shadow of what's being foretold, and it's a foreshadowing of, of heaven in order to go into heaven. You know, we need grace. 
We need God to fulfill everything that's required to get us there. That's unconditional. It's an unconditional unilateral covenant that God makes with his people. And it's a, it's a reminder of what God says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I mean, just that verse points us to what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says and just reminds us so powerfully of this, this message. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the covenants that God made with his people and this covenant of life that he's given to his people, you know, where does all our hope come from? It comes that he did everything needed in that covenant. It's not, a mutual, it's not an agreement of equals. It's an agreement of, of our sovereign God who's in everything that's needed for his people to enter into heaven. So what do we do? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reminds us we need faith. It's by grace that you are saved. This is gift. God's done it all. We just receive it. We believe it. We trust in him. He sent Jesus Christ in the world to give us life. He's done it all. So how certain are God's promises? They're as certain as Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. I mean, Jesus Christ died in real history. He was raised to life in real history. How certain are we of God's promises is grounded in his willingness to give his own son so we would have life. And he, here's the thing is he already did it. He already did it. He already has done everything needed to give us life. We just believe in him. And that's the key to trusting in God. You look to Jesus Christ, you look to his resurrection, because we see in that that God has proven once and for all his trustworthiness. And so let me ask you, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you sure that you're going to heaven? I mean, the only way you'll have it is by believing in Jesus Christ. And looking to him as the one who fulfills your responsibility, everything you need to do and failed to do, if you realize he's the only way you're going to get there, that's the only way you'll go to heaven is by believing in Jesus Christ. Look to him, believe in him, trust in him today. And also for you who want to live a fruitful Christian life, you know, you're called to remember that God has fulfilled every promise in Christ. And he's done it in his actions. Right? God put actions after his words. Not only did he promise forgiveness, eternal life, but he actually sent Jesus Christ in order to do it. God's actions are right in tune with his words. And in that is where we see the trustworthiness of God. And we see it every time we look to the cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we know that you can fulfill your promises. You are sovereign. And God, we know that you are willing to fulfill your promises. What grace you have given to us to do that for your people. Father, we couldn't do it. We have violated your law in every way, but you could do everything required to fulfill that covenant. And you did it in the death and resurrection of Christ. Thank you, God, that you did all that was required. Thank you, God, that we can walk in his promises. Father, help us to walk in those promises by believing in them, trusting them, that you'll do these things in us as you've done through Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, stand up together and let's sing.